Hey everyone, welcome to an Unlocked Patron episode. So, we recorded this one last year um, during the unrest after George Floyd's murder. And I had been thinking we are going to eventually release it on the main feed. And now seems like a pretty good time to do that. So, enjoy. And if you want to hear our other patron-only episodes go over to our Patreon and join for $2 a month. Alright, enjoy. Thus, within a repressive society, even progressive movements threaten to turn into their opposite to the degree to which they accept the rules of the game. To take a most controversial case, the exercise of political rights, such as voting, letter writing to the press, senators, etc., protest demonstrations with the a priori renunciation of counterviolence in a society of total administration serves to strengthen this administration by testifying to the existence of democratic liberties which in reality have changed their content and lost their effectiveness in such a case freedom of opinion of assembly of speech becomes an instrument for absolving servitude hello and welcome to the regrettable century i'm chris i'm kevin and i'm jason and today, everything is recuperated. We are talking about recuperation of authentic outrage. And, you know, we're not going to really dive into anything groundbreaking and remarkable. We're kind of just rehashing one of the key points made by Guy Debord in Society of the Spectacle. But we read a pretty cool article in Libcom recently called The Recuperation of Authentic Outrage. And it tried to anchor the concept in uh, contemporary circumstances, particularly around the pussy hat protests and stuff after the Trump election. So let's talk about recuperation. You guys uh, been recuperated lately? Yeah, every day of my life. Yeah. yeah. Listen, you're all recuperated. None of you are free of the spectacle. I like this article for how plainly it puts forward the like summarizes the concept of recuperation so that it can go right into right. its actual point because a lot of times you know when somebody writes an article like this half of it is dedicated to trying to just explain the framework so on the one hand i like that it explains it quickly and simply but also i like that it takes for granted that it's a concept that's been floating around long enough to where you know you at least have some familiarity with it their ideas are already in all of our heads I think that you would have to be really not paying attention to look at the world around us right now and see what is happening to this explosion of outrage over just atrocity and injustice stacked upon inequality and injustice and atrocity all coming to a head after an economic collapse and a pandemic where the government has really illustrated to us that they don't give a fuck and they're totally willing to let us just all die um, or at least a, a large portion of us to die like die off and it was all kicked off recently by yet another murder of a black man by the police and all of a sudden in the face of police precinct being burned down and riots and protests ongoing for two weeks now all of a sudden, Black Lives Matter is just mainstream overnight, whereas the Democrats wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole in 2016. And they actually advised candidates to stay away from Black Lives Matter and to not take up Black Lives Matter as a, uh, as a slogan. So, of course, we've had a couple of years worth of um, continued struggle, but to really cement 
in the idea into the popular consciousness. The the revolt had to happen. And now that the revolt is happening, the movement is actively being recuperated by... By everyone and everything. And, and I think that it slowly has been over the past few years, but it's really ramped up in the past couple of days. I mean, look at just... Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima are getting the axe. Ben and Jerry's released like the wokest of all woke BLM statements. You got police chiefs and mayors and everybody's woke now. Everybody is everybody supports Black Lives Matter. Uh, I think it's worth explaining the way the article puts the concept, because even though we said it, it explains it well, we probably should still do it. Yeah, okay. Go for it. Explain. Okay. So um I really like the way the article puts it by defining recuperation as the neutralization of revolutionary strategies, concepts, and images for the purpose of emptying them of their subversive content, thus making them compatible with mainstream bourgeois culture. And it's not just media culture, right, which is like the most glaringly superficial manifestation of the spectacle, but it's uh, it's more like that media is like the method of transmission, but it's more about like the overall arrangement that maintains political stability, uh, whether or not there's economic stability. And it's, it's the conscious manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses. All of that taken in a totality is what we're, try- we're, we're trying to figure out how to deal with. Does right. it have to be so, – wait, so you included in that definition the, the conscious manipulation, right? Well, when it comes to media, yes. But I, would, I, I think it's actually uh, that recuperation is a thing that happens uh, at least partly unconsciously. As a as a result of just the like the regular Media workings under of capitalism, yeah. Well, and the, yeah. yeah, exactly. The regular workings of of capital and the flow of capital, and you know, like I don't think that necessarily there's. The, well, let's put it this way: there isn't like a room with a recuperator's board that determines how <laughs> to best manipulate public perception of things and to utilize the the authentic outrage that people feel uh, in a way which is beneficial to capitalism. But it is the case that there is a, a board. At Pepsi, which decides, hey, everybody uh, is really on this Black Lives Matter thing right now. Let's get a celebrity to do a, a commercial that promotes Black Lives Matter and thus Pepsi-Cola. And that thing that's in the interest of that one firm uh, happens all over the place in multiple ways. So, you know, you have something, you know, like a, an older reference like that Pepsi commercial or something brand new like this. Uh, what's this book called? White Fragility. Yeah, you know, which is taking, uh, utilizing this moment, um, which is like the optimal time to talk about oppression and the ways in which people who um, are oppressed and the ways in which people aren't oppressed and how that those things, how you can build alliances across neighborhoods and across communities. It takes all of that genuine concern and and you know finds a way to reflect it back, to, but in a way which is not useful to actually accomplishing the goal. Right, um, like. I think that capitalism naturally is going to want to profit off of social movements. And that just so happens to serve the purpose of funneling that energy back into the system in a way that's useful to sustaining it. So even if it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be conscious on the part of like, like Jason said, the, uh, the recuperation board or whatever. It's, it's conscious in the fact that it, Capitalism needs new ways to market itself, and it will. It has no qualms. It, it figured out that you don't have to be afraid of social movements. All you have to do is co-opt them and sell them back to the people that are in, interested in them. Right. So I right. mean, the like the like the white fragility thing that Jason mentioned is essentially a corporate training manual, and so now there's a whole industry 
based on sensitivity and diversity training, which doesn't work. And it's a good thing that it doesn't work because that means you need to keep having it all the time. So they can sell it back to you. Right. It's a, yeah. Woke capitalism works the same way as unwoke capitalism. It's just that it's constantly seeking new ways to, to maintain itself. Exactly. Um, And I think it is, it is worth saying that it's not, it's not just a, an impulse uh, that, that arises subconsciously because the system, it just, because it functions. It's also the case that, um, you know, like in the Pepsi example, there, that there is a, there are, there are a series of conscious decisions made, made, which aggregate to uh, a general trend. So like media culture is an important part of recuperation, but it's more complex than that because it's, that's just a wing of it. That's just an arm of it. So, I mean, I raised the question, right? I raised the question of, uh, is it a, a conscious process? Because I have a sort of visceral reaction to the suggestion that it is. The, the, the notion or the suggestion that this is a, a conscious process, it does conjure to mind to, for me um, the sense that there's a recuperate, uh, a, uh, a capitalism recuperation board that's making a decision uh, to you know, to recuperate this, this thing and not that thing, uh, because, you know, this idea is truly revolutionary and would subvert us. And that idea would be, uh, uh, is co-optable. Right. Uh, and I, I just like, I just, I, not only do I think that that's, uh, um, not how things actually work. Uh, I think that that, that the Marxist tradition has actually gotten mired, far too much into trying to assign some sort of like conspiratorial um, entity that is engaging in um, the nefarious acts that, that we're, we're trying to like resist or whatever. When the reality of it, uh, of the world that we live in is so much uh, worse uh, and so much more helpless, so much, so much more out of our control that uh, there is no board and there are no conscious actors trying to make this happen because we live and operate in a world that uh, uh, is not consciously directed by anyone or any group of individuals, but rather is, uh, a, you know, system. It's a, it's an unconscious, unthinking uh, Leviathan that crushes us, us all uh, under its uncaring, unknowing steps, you know, lumbering uh, gate. And so I think it, 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 while it is important to like note the conscious decisions being made by PR executives, um, hired by Pepsi Cola and, uh, whoever else to make use of this moment or that moment and, the uh, the, uh, political consultants hired by the Democratic Party, also hired, the ones hired by the Republican Party are, you know, they're making conscious decisions to engage in particular sort of stoking of uh, cultural conflicts or attempts to um, co-opt these things. But I just try to, like, I try to picture, uh, when I think of that, like, I I try to picture, um, like, so what's my alternative then, you know? Like, what society, what world would not be engaging in the actions of, 
oh, here is a thing that's exploding and everyone and it impacts everyone and everyone is resonating with this incredible moment. And and, uh, you know, I'm trying to accomplish some goal, some uh, end result. What world in what world would I not try to engage with that? That social reality, that explosion of of uh, f- uh, fomenting activity, of compulsion that people are – this mass phenomenon of uh, individual people feeling this compulsion to uh, go out into the streets and express themselves in this incredible, unprecedented sort of way. Why would I not try to tap into that? Like wh- even in an idealized sort of utopian world, this – this seems like something that conscious actors would engage with. Well, okay, uh, sure, but the different. I guess the question is: as to what end, to what purpose? That's that's the the primary question. Is this is a this is about the function of what amounts to a systemic response as a result of the aggregate uh, the aggregate result of the actions of like the pursuit of self interest on the part of a given firm to like tap into something. I mean, this, it's the same way that, like, there are individual capitalist entities which hire and fire and raise wages and lower wages and try to squeeze more productivity and so- shorten supply chains and shorten turnover time in order to, uh, you know, realize value more quickly. And none of them operate alone. And the way that they all operate together amounts to the capitalist system. And then there's the superstructure that administers the capitalist system in the form of the state or whatever. Recuperation works the same way. Being woke is is hot right now. We got to get in on it while we can. And then everyone tries to get in on it while they can. So it's political maneuvering and it's very cynical, right? To like step out ahead of something. So like fucking Mitt Romney can be at a Black Lives Matter march, you know, and the people who are responsible for the crime bill can say like, it's a tragedy what's going on right now. But it's also a way to sell, you know, t-shirts and COVID-19 masks with woke slogans on them. But the overall function of everyone doing this is to generalize a commodification of dissent because it's it's attractive and appealing at the lowest common denominator mm-hmm. so that you you get the sense because that you are actually is yeah right sort of the same way that like lgbt rights became like a popular movement and it sort of gained steam politically and then same-sex couples started appearing on TV more, and they started appearing in ads more, and they started like uh, co-opting the, the the rainbow flag. The movement being recuperated by businesses in order to be able to get in on the like woke branding and stuff like that uh, sort of made it commonplace and made it mainstream. So that by the time the uh, the government actually came around to recognizing gay marriage, it had been. It had been defanged. It had its radical elements removed from it because it had taken on like a very woke liberal sort of mainstream character as opposed to being the descendants of Stonewall. I think it's important to say that that doesn't mean that you can't achieve things. It doesn't mean that there are no such gains within the parameters that are established for us by this system. Like it is a, it is a good thing that everybody's or you know that more and more people are in favor of the extension of at least a basic humanity to people that they didn't used to have to think about like that's good objectively good the point is only that because what we want to see is more than just 
a nicer and nicer version of what is, but the complete overturning of all social relations. And because the, the, the strategy for building, you know, the left in this country for the last several decades has been movement hopping from this social justice cause to that social justice cause, you know, trying to push them as far as they can go in an attempt to, to, to somehow ramp up a radicalization to a fever pitch. It's important to recognize that that's, well, I was going to say it's important to recognize, but I'll, instead of what I'll do is I'll, I'll make the contention that this society is capable of weathering those shocks. So even though we should push those things as far as they can go, they never amount to a revolutionary threat to the system itself. But I can't – so here's what I'm thinking about whenever I think about that. I'm thinking about when I lived in Dallas and I drove by uh, and and I lived in, uh, relatively nearby um, a uh, bar club uh, called Che that had Che's face uh, uh, lit up in multicolor lights uh, across the side of it that was kind of like a high society – a fancy like a uh, club where people would go dancing and like hook up and stuff. Uh, I'm thinking of when I, uh, you know, went to a tourist district in Mexico and bought a, um, uh, a, a shirt with Che's face on it. Uh, I'm thinking about the American uh, or international uh, largely Western labor movement that has been entirely co-opted into the capitalist system uh, many times over, so much so that it doesn't even have to be crushed anymore. It just has to be embraced. It it doesn't make sense to me to make a distinction between actually revolutionary things that can't be co-opted and, and the non-revolutionary things that are co-opted that are sort of like filtered out it seems like there isn't such a thing as a non-cooptable existence under You're capitalism. Right. I mean, I th- I think that's pretty close. There is no such yeah. thing as a non-cooptable aesthetic language method of presentation and so on, right? The only thing that's not cooptable is actually taking power from the bourgeoisie so that something can be useful in helping cohere the forces that we're trying to array against capital. And then there is the ultimate strategy of those, the ultimate goal of those things. And if you can buy a hammer and sickle t-shirt at Forever 21, it's not a very threatening image anymore. Um, which doesn't mean you shouldn't be inspired by it if it's hanging on your wall, but it means that, um, your symbol has been hollowed out. And so, yeah. Uh, remember my CCCP, uh, track jacket I got from Target? Yeah. I, gu- I guess what it is is that, w- we unconsciously act as though we still live in an era in which you can freak out the squares, man. Like <laughs> they, they, they figured out how to stop clutching their pearls so much and try to clamp down on expressions of radical sentiment. They're more or less allowed to think and say and express whatever you want. So it's again, it's yes, like, eating ass doesn't freak out the squares. Okay. Right. Um, when you can watch, you know, when anti-system movies is a category on Netflix that re- <laughs> makes recommendations to you. And when the, even when they're, the, you can sell multi-platinum albums, which explicitly promote the idea of communism. That means that merely expressing the desire for the end of capitalism does nothing to threaten capitalism. Although they had figured out a way to make money off of it. 
So it doesn't mean you should feel yeah. ashamed for listening to like a dead Prez song, right? It doesn't mean that like you are now a dupe. It just means that that's not a threat to the system. And that puts us back at the drawing board for some people because we've operated for decades. Like our affectations are somehow inherently a threat to the very people from whom we have purchased the image that defines our personality. Yeah, exactly. And that, to me, is an incredibly liberating thing to hear. Not so much a, uh, you know, it doesn't shatter my illusions because my illusions fell away uh, long after I was one of those people that lived this, like, revolutionary, quote-unquote, lifestyle and had all the revolutionary affectations and, you know, the Karl Marx t-shirt and linen pin on my lapel and, you know, listening to the punk rock bands that sang about revolution and, and all that stuff. And looking back at it and realizing that I think all of that stuff is, you know, just sort of, I don't know, gaudy and dumb, <laughs> um, is also not useful. <laughs> so to me, it's just like, okay, good. Right. Well, it's not a betrayal of some sort of like useful thing. It's actually just doesn't matter at all. Like it's, it's okay to be like that if you would like to be like that, but it doesn't matter. The flavor of ice cream you prefer it matters just as much to the revolutionary movement as which bands and what t-shirt you're going to wear. Right. And, and the reason why this is an important political discussion isn't even to like just let people know that it doesn't matter, right? It's that if they think it does matter, then it's detrimental because it's, uh, right. you know, at the risk of sounding um, like a person who has it figured out, because I don't think that that's, I, I certainly wouldn't try to posture as though I am, right? At the um, risk of sounding like a charlatan. At the risk of sounding like a charlatan. I think uh, what I guess what I want to say about this is that the critique of recuperation is about a fear of being lulled into not so much complacency, but more like misled into uh, a blind alley, which is something that can happen to all of us, right? So we... We win a political victory of sorts, and more and more people are on our side about it, and it becomes a cause for our enemies, and suddenly now we're sharing the stage with them, and it's a concession we make because look at how uh, much further the message spreads now, but then the message has, starts to morph, and that the same term, the same language is starts to be used to hold back the actual demand contained within the language itself. It's kind of like how the term socialism means so many things, uh, often things which are in direct conflict with each other. Um, right. So there's a singular term, which means whatever you want it to mean. That's a really good example of how something can be uh, embraced so widely that it loses its meaning. And then we have to fight for its meaning all over again, even against other people who believe they're fighting for its meaning. So that's the danger of recuperation is about confusing us and not just them, right? Not like the people who don't get it, but us as well. Let's talk about a concrete example real quick. Defund the police. What does that mean? Depends on who you ask. If you ask the mayor of Washington, D.C., it means that they want better, more responsible policing. Right. Yeah, it means auditing the police budget. <laughs> yeah. So even in our conversation that we had about the whole question of police abolition, the question was raised, like, don't you think that the organizers on the ground know that? And they might. Let's assume that they do. Let's have a, a gesture of good faith to everybody out there trying to, like, organize. Right, they're, they're fully aware of Camden, New Jersey, where, you know, they uh, 
dismantled the police department and then reformed it or or they're aware of uh south africa where there was a rapid decrease in police presence and a rapid uh, uh congruent rapid increase in the presence of unaccount un, uh, publicly unaccountable private security forces uh to ensure the protection of the private property of the wealthy uh, m- many instances where uh, something that could be lab- f- sorted under the label of defund the police results in a, a reactionary uh, consequence. Right. And so we can be aware of that and still not really know how to avoid getting sucked into it by more sophisticated political actors on the opposite side uh, or forget the opposite side, more sophisticated political actors actors who explicitly intend to utilize this side for their own purposes. Um, right. We can all be aware of it and still not know what to do and how to avoid it and sometimes even how to recognize it. So I think the discussion about recuperation just needs to become normalized. Like it just, it's got to be right along there with how you meet countless people who can make a, a, a very convincing case for how this reform is a necessary thing to do and here's how it will lead in the direction they think we need to go, which is ultimately what we call revolution, right? That the dichotomy between... Right, a non-reformist reform, you might say. Right. So, like, we're aware of the the many pitfalls of, of a, a purely re- reformist course in politics. And yet we still fight for reforms because we need them, right? But at least ostensibly we imagine that we're... Well, what it is is that we're hypervigilant about trying to chart a course further than the reforms... Uh, aim to go in the first instance so that we might have these allies who won't go further we have a, at least we imagine ourselves to have a vision that goes further than that um part of, part of that is recognizing the ways in which you can be brought to a halt you know you can be brought into a blind alley so one of the things that one of the reasons why i think it's important to be aware of recuperation as it's happening um is because i think that it helps to not lose sight of the goal and to not think of things that aren't progress as being signs that progress is being made like uh all of the woke statements from everyone's favorite brands that's not progress that's recuperation um city councils overnight deciding that they're going to uh spray black lives matter on the street and take down statues that's recuperation that what they're trying to do is make you feel like you are winning so that they can say, look, we've made concessions. Now it's your turn to make concessions. Pulling over a statue is one thing, but the city council removing it overnight going, hey, look, you guys are already winning. Like fucking Cuomo did say, hey, why are you guys protesting? We're, you're already winning. You already won. We're going to have a conversation about the police budget. Yeah. It's like, nope. In, in the tradition of describing memes... I have to I have to describe a meme which I think actually illustrates just how implicit this is it for a lot of people and how po- trying to popularize the term recuperation is about making it explicit but the way in which it's implicit like here's this meme here it says hey could the police just treat us better and then it's like ABC says black bachelor Starbucks black it up baristas band-aid we got y'all boo-boos fam and so on it goes like that for a while right and it's like, TV, that cop show, canceled. And at the bottom, it's like, and then us. And our response is, uh, okay, but um, the police, right? Like, none of these other things actually fundamentally get at the, the, the real the They don't root challenge problem. the system at all. They don't, they, they're, they're cosmetic changes 
then make it feel as though something positive is happening without ever getting well, to the I feel root like, of what the co- I feel like that's is. more accurately de- uh, described that's more accurately describing like Nancy Pelosi wearing the the whatever cloth the kente, the kente cloth, cloth yeah um uh or uh or fucking what's his name the Canadian prime minister uh marching against himself with the uh <laughs> with with the climate march you know uh, or 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 you know i, I don't know uh, one of these instances where it's 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 a, a sort of capturing of the symbolism uh with uh, a conscious evacuation of the content whereas i feel like we we run the risk of dismissing actual wins uh when we take that critique too far when you say there is a shifting, when there is a shifting of the tide and you dismiss that shifting of the tide as not real change because it hasn't gone all the way, I think that that's missing the fact that the, the, the terrain has shifted. Uh, the power is not the same as it was before. There is a real advance and a real reform and a real thing that has changed. Uh, what's when, the reform that you you're saying I dismissed? That's a that's a great question. I think I uh, specifically what I mentioned. The two things I mentioned were painting Black Lives Matter on the street and then doing those quick overnight removal of statues. I think the removal of statues uh, is a good thing, and that's like an that's, expression I mean, of it's, power. It's, it's a good thing, right? Just like having gay people depicted together in tv ads is a good thing exactly it is that's a real and i don't think we should dismiss that as pure recuperation i I, um everything is dialectical uh everything contains progress and regress within it at the same time And and i and i think it would harm us to not recognize that reality but i think it harms us to not recognize the reality of the progress contained in things that do contain real progress like i want to like so i i i keep wanting to be optimistic <laughs> no no not be yeah, optimistic <laughs> no it's not about it really isn't it really isn't so here's here's what i'm thinking of is the the class reductionist adolf reed uh, which you know he gets real fucking angry when people call him a class reductionist and i think that the the guy has uh he is a sharp intellect who has a lot of important things to say to this day. I continue to read things that he produces because I think he's incredibly uh, insightful and, and useful to our contemporary discourse and and movements. Right. But when he critiques uh, identity politics, when he talks about race first, what he calls race first politics, what he uh, calls race reductionist politics as a sort of turning on its head of the accusations that are thrown at his camp. The way that he argues is that he'll talk about the recuperation of identity politics that were in uh, the, the, a term, a phrase that was invented by the Combahee River Collective, a, a radical uh, revolutionary Marxist organization that was building on a tradition of unrecuperatable um, actions and, and lives and, and politics praxis one might say uh, and the way that that product has been the product of their lives and their lives work has been recuperated by neoliberal politicians and corporations 
uh, he and others um, uh, from that camp will point to that recuperation, but what they'll ignore, they'll just flatly ignore. This is this is sort of the the thing the that I, the consistent pattern that I found is that they will just flatly ignore the pre-existing authentic outrage that gave rise to the thing that got uh, recuperated. They'll completely ignore uh, the radical identitarian tradition or the, the, the socialist identitarian tradition. And they'll focus, they'll zero in only on the recuperation as well, if we shouldn't do that, it that way. As if that dismisses the underlying uh, authentic outrage itself. And I, I, I think that that there we, you run the risk when you uh, of doing that when you zero in on nothing but the recuperation you run the risk of dismissing the authentic outrage that underlies it. Sure, I think it's a, definitely a risk. So it's, it's a risk yeah. worth taking, though. When something is being re- recuperated, it doesn't mean that it has lost all of its value, and all of the progress made up to the point of recuperation is just retroactively null and void. Like you said, it's a dialectical process. The It's going to be, you know, gains are going to be made, and then the aesthetic will be sold back to us somehow, or channeled off into some nefarious neoliberal purpose, right? So, like I said, yeah, removing the statues, it is a good thing, because it basically takes beacons of racism and says, look, this isn't okay anymore, everyone is against this. So, at very least you're going to be more quiet about your racist views in public. But it's not getting at the roots of systemic racism. So yeah, this these cosmetic changes, are they're great. But at the same time, they are very easily recuperated. And all I'm saying when I'm... When I'm saying that, like, spray paint or painting Black Lives Matter on the street and removing the statues... I mean, I guess, yeah, sure, it is, it is some kind of win. But it is not a win that is good enough for us to to spend any time celebrating it. Because I think that like the day after Mayor Bowser had Black Lives Matter spray painted on the street, she said, people aren't actually saying defund the police. That's not what people want. What people want is better policing. So it's like, look, you guys, I, I spray painted the thing on the street, okay? We're, we're taking down the statue, <laughs> yeah. okay? What do you want from me? I said you know, the bloody this words. Is, this is a... a <laughs> this is a con it's a conscious attempt at sidelining the real demands of the movement by making cosmetic changes and not even reforms but uh attempts to placate that don't actually challenge the system or get at the roots of what any of the problems are so it's like sure that's that's fine i think that those are great let's let's accept those wins as they come and I think I might have misspoken by saying this isn't progress or this isn't a win. This isn't a substantial win. This isn't substantial progress is what I should have said. That being said, if we do not look at what is happening, at wins that we're getting, if gains that are being made and recognize active recuperation as the wins are happening, then we run the risk of being placated by things that do not challenge the system at all. Right. And it's important to bring up the other end of the concept of recuperation is not just the conscious strategy or the unconscious impulse, depending on, you know, which specific instance we're talking about, of taking up, taking the popular pressure on uh, an institution or, or on the system as a whole and diffusing it in such a way as to render it weak. But it's also about repurposing the very opposition 
so that a person can identify with it without actually being oppositional so that you can take you can become a black lives matter activist now and like like Mitt Romney right or you or or even just like you could be a young person who wants to be a part of this thing recognizes its historic nature recognizes the necessity of confronting institutional systematic oppression head on and then finds allies uh, amongst our enemies which who speak the same language as them you know who who utilize the same symbols as them and then they politically grow up in that environment you know and then as part of the movement actively sow an alternative politics to the movement itself as a conscious honest to goodness participant in the movement right so that you could take something that is oppositional and then rewrite it to be a support for the system and then the activists within it who hate the system can play the role of trying to undermine the system by actively supporting it. That's the, in its totality, when recuperation is a successful strategy, it, it is, it, it ends the movement as an opposition and makes it a part of the system. So that it right. used to be that feminism meant fighting for an equal rights amendment. It meant fighting, uh, for like genuine responses to domestic abuse. It meant, a whole series of reforms which would have act- actively alleviated the burdens that women carry. And now it means, oh, you're not going to vote for Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> and an honest feminist w- will say that to you and genuinely think that what they're doing is the exact same work as the people fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment. And it's a tragedy. There's a, we should get no joy or feel dismissive about any of this. It's more about like, how do we keep ourselves from being those people? And how do we actively combat it in a way which is inclusive and brings people back? And so when I when I said being reper- re- reused for nefarious neoliberal purposes, how about the Believe Women slogan being used to bludgeon anybody who didn't immediately agree with Elizabeth Warren's claim that Bernie Sanders said that she couldn't be president because Americans would never elect a woman president? Oh, yeah, man. When and Bernie got Me Too'd? Bernie got Me Too'd for something that was... Totally not what Me Too was about at all, but it became a, a mechanism for discipline and control of, within the Democratic Party. It, it's, a, it's a completely cynical repurposing of something that was supposed to be used as a tool to make sure that women are treated like human beings. And instead, it's used to push a neoliberal who was trying to kneecap the, uh, the front runner because he was slightly to the left of center of the the other pro-capitalist forces in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Kevin, I think the concern that you're giving voice to is it is we should we should take it seriously and and sincerely. Right. I just think that um anytime we popularize uh, a particular dissenting narrative and then we don't take it to its furthest conclusion, it becomes a part of the popular culture and that means it becomes commodifiable. And then it becomes defanged. That's all it was. That's all that I think we should be trying to say. Not that, uh, you know, you're all wrong. You're all dupes because painting BLM on, you know, on the boutique window doesn't do anything for the 120 people who have gotten murdered since the protests began. It's saying, I'm glad they- We're f- not saying that? I'm saying that. <laughs> well, it's, I'm just saying it's not just saying that. It's, it's, okay. what it is, is it's saying that I'm glad that they're afraid. For their windows, and they have to paint, <laughs> and they have to t- they have to publicly agree with us. So that exactly. People don't. But if we stop there, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Right. That means that, don't that get comfortable. Ins- it means that 
keep pushing until the owners of things can no longer identify with the opposition. And then we've really got something. That means keep pushing until there are no cops. Because that's all I was trying to say. To make a battlefield analogy, you have a primary objective across the field. Now, if you take some of the field, yeah, you won that day. But you haven't won the battle. And if you stop at the place where you, the territory you have seized, but your enemy still stands, you lose your territory eventually. The war against capitalism is a war uh, just like any other war. And so, yes, let's advance down the, down the field. But you can't lose sight of the ultimate objective or else you lose the field itself. Does that make sense? And sometimes taking a portion of the field is actually negative because it puts you, puts you in an exposed position where if you do not reach your objective, it makes you uniquely vulnerable to counterattack. Mm-hmm. So look at Ferguson, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you don't try. It just means in a situation where you have momentum – Letting the Democrats sideline the movement into electoral work or thinking of Ben and Jerry's statement or the spray painting on the streets as being signs that we're actually getting what we want so we don't have to try as hard, that not as many people need to turn out in the streets or or whatever else they are trying to do. As far as I can tell, people don't seem to be being fooled by it, except for a couple of my more softer liberal friends on the internet, you know who I love, but I think that they just don't understand power and politics at all. Uh, Letting the momentum be arrested and seeing these cosmetic victories as something that are are signs of tangible change and that if we did have to back off, it's okay because we already won this, this much, I think would be a huge mistake. I would say that like winning police defunding and police demilitarization is the partial victory. Not winning police any any sort of police defunding or winning any sort of police uh, demilitarization, but accepting the fact that the statues are taking down as a good enough win for now. I think that is the danger and that is the mistake and that puts us in the vulnerable position. Burn down a like burning down a police station for what? So that people can go to jail for the rest of their lives and statues can get taken down. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying that's what they would like to happen. Right. Uh, we've got to think strategically about yeah. any particular uh, approach or anything that we do. Um, that's true. But also the spontaneity of mass movements, d- just like co- uh, recuperation, they they don't have like a, a committee <laughs> that's like, dis- you know, consciously deciding how we proceed, you know. Um, the sponta- spontaneity of mass movements are exactly that. They're spontaneous. Of course. Uh, they're they're pure expressions of authentic outrage. Uh I I don't know, maybe maybe it's maybe I'm coming back to to Trotsky here and saying that, you know, the authentic outrage is the uh the steam that arises from boiling water and uh it just dissipates into the air if you don't have a piston box to uh channel it into the and it need we need we are we need, need a piston box so badly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look, like we, I, I don't think any of us have abandoned the notion of uh, organization as key, right? Like, I think we all, we all think that some kind of complex sum of the parts of the, of the trade unions and of the social movements and of the, you know, the various left circles that exist here and there, that something could be cobbled together into a, a an effective vehicle for sustained resistance right but organization can also be recuperated like if you look at uh 
the communist parties of Europe in, I mean, there are some countries like in Cyprus, where it was the progressive party of working people, I think is what they're called. That's the communist party there. That, um, was in power during the austerity regime following the 2008 crash. Uh, that's a recuperated entity which speaks the language of workers' power and communism and runs the state on behalf of international finance and the comprador bourgeoisie, right? Just like uh, as if they were the Christian Democrats or they were, you know... Or a Syriza. Or just any, right, any neoliberal party. That's a, that's a recuperated organization. Just like sentiment in the broadest sense can be, so can even be uh, that sentiment when it's expressed in its most concentrated form, you know, as as the uh, tangible sort of work being done to achieve the goals. It's it's hard to talk about and it's hard to deal with because it's it's so big and it's so staggering to think about. It's kind of like when we talk about being pessimists, there's a, there's a discomfort that comes with it because we want to believe in a bright future for humanity because it's, it's, because it's necessary and because we're alive and to live without purpose is not to live, right? So we want to be a part of that march to the communist horizon. And yet also, we constantly find reasons to be pessimistic. It's an uncomfortable discourse, but I think we, we are a part of it for a reason. And so we put ourselves in the position of having to defend a, a term and a concept and a way of thinking that we actually think is in service to the goals that all the optimists have. And I think that this is part of the same project. It's like we're absolutely on board. We're absolutely a part of it. Um, the concern about recuperation that's at the forefront of my mind at all times is the same as my pessimism. It's a, But it's not a reason to not be involved. It's a reason to just to at least attempt steer the vehicle um despite really really rough terrain because it's really easy to get knocked off course and it's really it's just a matter of our best intentions most of the time because we don't have political organization to like effectively manage and utilize the discussion into a way which is something like strategy well we still want to believe in the possibility of the march to the communist horizon right but like i think that the worst thing in the world would be to find out that the march that you've been on the whole time is is a march to like fucking burning pile of trash and not actually the communist horizon you know um so i it's not that it's not that i think that we should not engage as much as little as i like to engage that has more to do with uh my psychology than it does with uh <laughs> with my my vision of what i think is possible for the future i i think that being aware of how at the, what we are doing as we are doing it is actively being uh, recuperated just means that we have to abandon trajectories when they're no longer useful to in order to find new ones it doesn't mean that it's not worth beginning these trajectories and seeing how far we can take them it's not it's not abandon all hope ye who enter no, it's like swinging from vine to vine. If you stay on the same fucking vine, you're eventually just going to swing backwards, right? Yeah, it's for a the cons- Tarzan communism. <laughs> um, there's so many metaphors and images communism. floating yeah, around. It's hard to know when to stop. But you know the the term wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, or false prophet. That's what we're really talking about, right? Is like being an effective part of the project 
of reconstituting like a, a communism which is genuinely rooted in the struggles of working and oppressed people means constantly being on the lookout for people who wittingly or otherwise take those aspirations and draw up uh, maps that take you nowhere or that take you to bad places. It means everybody has to be hyper vigilant about it because it can't just, there's no automatic uh, linear march forward. It's not just like we're going to, we go and it, and the ideas get more popular and the rulers can keep giving us concessions. And then at some point we're done. It's just like how the discussion about reforms and tinkering with the system has to include the vision and the not just the, the vision, but like the conscious attempt to figure out ways to get past the system itself altogether. Um, so too does the conversation about building the broadest popular coalition and assaulting on all fronts and trying to win every little bit that we can get uh, that has to be married with a lookout for misleaders, for limitations, and, you know, just to be constantly trying to find ways to push forward. One of the things that the author says is that the burning limo and the smashed shop front are not de-rationalized because they accomplish nothing. In fact, the very opposite is true. They symbolize a death of passivity, posing an existential threat to the political mindset. And then further, it is only when it tries to overcome the state rather than shape it that any sort of resistance transforms itself into revolution. And I think I can like broadly agree with those two sentiments without... Right. Without a you know, adopting the attitude that unless you're burning a limo and smashing shop windows, then you're not doing anything. Or unless you are in the process of attempting to overcome the state, that you're on the wrong side. It's just that in an ultimate and final sense, that's true. So, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of built-in insurrectionism with this viewpoint, right? It sees the application of this sort of violence as a liberatory step. It's sort of Sorelian in that it like it's part of liberating the consciousness. Once you take that step, it's an act of deciding that you have broken from the established way of doing things, and it's actually liberating. Now, for the most part, I agree with that. I don't think it's like a conscious like political strategy, like we didn't need to start a political party where everyone goes and throws bricks through cop cars. But I think that it marks a radical shift in consciousness that does it is a demarcation line for what the potentialities of, of a movement are. And that's where the, the protest goes from being the, the release valve, the built-in transgression, to being something that is actually challenging the status quo because it is flying in the face of the rule of law. And it threatens to, if unchecked, do much more damage than just the brick through the window. Yeah, I think this paragraph encapsulates it. It is violence as a form of action in its movement beyond structure and symbolism that threatens the present order. It bypasses the activist struggle to overcome the contradiction of their own work and lays bare the foundations of the capitalist state. Beyond the political lies the potential for a reconstruction of the human. If only we can cease to reproduce the conditions of our own oppression. It is only when it tries to overcome the state rather than shape it that any sort of resistance transforms itself into revolution. Um, and that immediately follows a discussion of, of why um, breaking a, a window is no more inherently revolutionary than uh, a nonviolent protest. 
I, I think you're exactly right, Chris, that it's uh, very Sorelian. But, but I think that this author is making a defense of violence uh, or while simultaneously trying to avoid the conclusion that each individual or any individual act of violence is itself uh, revolutionary. Right. And the, one of the ways that the situationists are mischaracterized is in saying that essentially this sort of thing is the only true revolutionary activity. Whereas that 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 would you would have to have not like actually engaged with the material in order to think that, because the the situationists were Marxists. They believed in the establishment of a revolutionary party. They just thought that the revolutionary parties that existed at the time, or the communist parties that existed at the time, were not revolutionary. So, to the situationists, uh, to like Marxists who believe that there needs to be revolutionary communist organization. They also think that the necessity of trying to overcome the spectacle needs to be part of the revolutionary process outside of, not outside of, in addition to the regular organization and political activity that takes place. Yeah, or even like a critical part of it, right? A critical part yeah. of it. Yeah, not in addition to, but yeah, exactly. Observing, observing the spectacle and trying to engage in authentic resistance to it is part of building revolutionary organizations and engaging in revolutionary party activity, in my mind. Yeah, the challenge for us is to move beyond the first level of this critique, which is just the recognition of the potential for recuperation. You know, any anarchist can tell you that throwing a brick through a Starbucks window can't be recuperated because uh, it costs them too much, right? Because it disrupts their business. Um But that doesn't tell you anything about how to organize, you know, beyond an individual moment of property destruction, right? So it might have like a really good symbolic value, but the smashing of, of property in order to make a point or the, the willingness to take a street or a bridge without, you know, instead of taking a permanent march, like all of those things have an incredibly uh, powerful psychological value to them. But the whole concern about recuperation is about what happens afterward and what happens in the, in the everyday, in the times in between, you know, moments of rebellion. So that, uh, you know, so that more moments of rebellion can happen. I don't know, man. Um, there's an entire industry of uh, insurers who who profit <laughs> quite well on the threat of people throwing bricks through Starbucks windows. Well, yeah, but it it is done at the expense of other industries. Like, yeah, Starbucks. It's a it's a cost that Starbucks yeah. has a cost of operation that Starbucks has to uh, inc- incorporate into its. Uh, you know, lo- putting a location in any downtown area uh, is the the fact that the cost to insure it will be higher uh, because the insurance company has run the calculations based on historical trends and current political and whatever uh, trends that are happening right now. And they've calculated that the risk of a brick being thrown through this downtown window is uh, X number of dollars uh, pay us monthly. Uh, and then Starbucks well, has to decide whether it's they, they can still make a profit uh, based on that or not. But it's recuperated into the capitalist system. Grease so on the gears. If man. a if enough bricks are thrown, though, the system collapses because insurance companies are always operating under the assumption that they're never going to have to pay out. And when they do have to pay out, even though you've already paid your premium, which has had those projections built into it, them paying out increases your premium. So there's a cycle of constant increase. The more windows that are broken, 
the more premiums that are paid out, the more the cost for insurance goes up. Mm -hmm. And eventually insurance companies run out of money. So like in in Texas, uh, uh, I don't remember after which hurricane it was. This hurricane came through and completely bankrupted all of the insurance companies. So the federal government actually had to come in and fulfill these uh, these policies and pay out on these policies and then created a separate windstorm insurance company to be able to take care of that sort of thing. So you break enough Starbucks windows, you're going to collapse the uh, insurance industry also. <laughs> a lot of very well-intentioned level-headed people on the left have uh, done a lot in the service of recuperation by like joining in the liberal demonization of you know rowdy kids breaking things which are insured because uh, or or fucking burning the police cars as if they were actual human beings because the established order responded in two ways to the you know to the rebellion one was to oppose it outright and say i'm going to deploy the national guard and the other one was to say oh no we're all for it but don't do violence and then suddenly all these people are like, oh, yeah, good. Okay, yeah, we won't do violence. We'll just have a, basically a big fucking party in the park. And everyone will know that we're, we're the good protesters. And then the police are like, hey, thanks for, you know, doing it right. And then they go and have a picnic in the park in Kansas City with Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and look, I love picnics in the park. And I think that, you know, the revolt is a, is a joyous activity. No, I mean, having a picnic in the park is great, just not with the cops. Right. In that particular... <laughs> that's a, that's inexcusable. Yeah, that's, in that instance, it's really easy to determine what went wrong there. But yeah. what I mean is just, I guess, well, let's say this, that probably the most effective strategy against recuperation that can be deployed at the present moment is to constantly be having the conversation with the people around us about where we are in a given city, in a given moment, and how happy the established powers are about it. So if you're able to have a demonstration, which is just never a problem on the news, you never have to deal with the police, that the fucking city council sends people to come and address it, it might be time to start talking about figuring out why they find it so acceptable. Because they are, even when they can be pushed to pass new laws or to pull some money out of the police budget or even to announce publicly that they're willing to try to talk through how to get rid of a police department altogether, that uh, ultimately these people aren't on our side. No. Once they start acting like they are, we ought to consider like, okay, we got to a pretty decent place. How do we keep going? How do we how do we push further? Because um, short of that, I don't think that there is much that we can do about recuperation. Absent, you know, a counter hegemonic force in the form of a political institutions of our own, which then we have to worry about those being recuperated. But at least it's a different discussion. All we need is a communist party and a revolution. That's it. I don't know what we're waiting for. I mean, look, it'd be probably good if we had a couple of radical parties so that, you know, just in case one of them goes wrong, we have another one. That'd be right. That's all we need. Yeah, all we need is for everybody to be uh, a, a, a majority of the popu uh, of the electorate to be uh, Marxist. That's, That's it. it. Acting in accordance with capital's need to exert its dominion over nature, it also extends its domination over the domain of language and over the realm of acceptable expressions of outrage. One needn't look any further than the outpouring of protests and demonstrations which have materialized over the past few weeks for an example of this subsumption of the limits of radical outrage. 
To put it simply, liberal activism can be described as that of an empty signifier. That is to say, it acts as an imitation of the radical activism in which it seeks to replace. It creates a stage for the general public to try on the mask of the political radical, while at the same time allowing for the members of the privileged classes to direct this performance by redefining what radical action actually looks like. <laughs>